So, um, normally for tonight, which is our displaced first Thursday of the month, because I wasn't here on the first Thursday, um, I reserve that for questions and answers, in that I think people um, are doing practice on their own and sometimes run into questions or issues, and it can also help to hear the questions of others. Um, so that's going to be the main focus, but I did, I do have a, a story that I want to share first, kind of a teaching story that I'm fond of, and it also opens a topic that um, could be the basis for some questions or comments, or you can be thinking of any questions about your practice or about the Dharma in the meantime. So the story I want to tell is about a teacher in the Tibetan tradition whose name, once she became a teacher, was uh, Sukha Siddhi. But the, be the story begins with her being a regular uh, married woman in a Tibetan village somewhere, not wealthy. And she had a husband and two sons. They lived together in, a, in their little cottage. Maybe it was even just a hut because they became uh, poorer and poorer, just they fell on some hard times, and they got down to having one measure of rice. That was all they had uh, for eating, and so uh, her husband and sons said, well, we got to go out and do something about this, so we're going to go out and look for work. Uh, and they had set off in each of the directions, she probably had three sons, so they could go in all four cardinal directions. And off they went and left her at home, as was the tradition. And while she was there at home, a wandering ascetic came by the house. You know, at that time, in that society, there were a whole group of people uh, no, to, to your left. Um, <laughs> hit the light switch. Thanks. So in that society, um, it was the same as in ancient India when the Buddha lived, even though it was much later, that there was a whole group of people who were, you know, just beggars, who were meditators, people like us who uh, wanted to have a serious practice. But um, if you wanted to do that, there was a way that you could just wander around and, and beg for alms, basically. And it was respected that there were people in society who wanted to develop their minds and wanted to um, find out more about the inner world, and so they were actually supported. So anyway, one of these wandering ascetics came by and was begging for food, and Sukhasiddhi was uh, confident that her husband and sons would be successful, and so she gave him the rice. And... Um, and then her husband and sons came home at the end of the day and said, well, we didn't find any work, so let's have the rice. And she said, oh, uh, well, we don't have it anymore. I gave it to a wandering monk. And they were very angry and threw her out of the house. 
So there she was out on the street and wandered off. Eventually, you know, she began begging herself and eventually made it to some other town or maybe even another country and happened to be fortunate one day in her begging and received a fair amount of barley and rice. And so she thought, huh, and decided to brew some beer. And so she brewed up some beer with what she'd received and took it to the marketplace and sold it. It happened to be pretty good beer, actually. And she made enough money to buy some more the next day. She could actually start a little business. And so she did. So every day she went to the marketplace. Things were improving enough for her that she could uh, make and sell her beer. And people liked it. She got to be known. And one day, this amazingly beautiful woman came by, like out of place in a dusty marketplace, dressed very well, and came to the beer stand and said, I'd like to get some beer. And she said, is it for you? And the woman said, no, 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 it's, it's for my teacher. I have a special spiritual teacher. And she said, oh, well, in that case, uh, just take it for free. Just take it and offer it to him. So... You know, you don't need to pay. And so she said, oh, thank you very much, and took the beer. And the spiritual teacher was very pleased. He liked it a lot. And the next day, the same woman came back, so it became a regular thing. She came every day, got this measure of beer for her teacher, and Sukhasiti was glad to give it. She had enough other business. She could do that for free. And one day the teacher said, you know, this is really good beer that you've been bringing me every day. It must be very expensive. And the woman said, no, actually, there's this woman in the marketplace that gives it for free because she knows it's going to you. And he said, oh, well, we're going to have to do something for her. Why don't you have her come? And so, you know, the fancy lady went and told Tsukasidi that she wanted to have her meet this teacher. And so she went up there, and the teacher saw immediately, probably from intuition earlier, right? But he saw immediately that she had great spiritual potential. And he uh, began to train her, and he offered her very powerful teachings, which she, because she had, she was ripe, she had good train, good understanding, and was ready, had made good merit. She immediately understood the teachings and became awakened. And she became a great spiritual teacher herself, and that was when she was named Tsukasiti, actually. And she went on and had a number of famous disciples. She's actually somewhat, I wouldn't say well-known, but she's known in the, in the one branch of the Tibetan tradition. So, in some ways, so first of all, what do you make of this story? Interesting story? You guys were hanging on every word, no, not literally, but what are your impressions from it? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's pretty bad to be thrown out of your house with nothing, and she didn't collapse. Mm -hmm. That's right. Resourcefulness. Anything else? She kept her generosity as well. That's right. Yeah. That struck me also. Is that. She was very generous, I and mean, even when she didn't have much, she was willing to, to give, to offer, 
which you know is often expounded in spiritual tales, but we can see in ourselves that sometimes even when we know we have a lot, there can be moments where it's hard to give, and so it's always inspiring to hear things like that. And actually, what you've pointed out is one of the one of the keys, I think, to um, to going a little deeper in this story. So I'd like to talk about that for a moment. It is actually, in and of itself, a great story about resilience, about generosity, about the way life can surprise us. And so, you know, we should remember that if things take a downturn, who knows? Who knows what's coming? Um, But it's also possible to see a little bit of metaphor in this story. So, for example, um, living in a household with husband and sons, that's a pretty traditional setup. Um, And basically that system was not working. You know, that family was falling into poverty for we don't know what reasons, um, whatever reasons that happens. And so it could be metaphorical for this is the conventional, traditional system, and it's starting to break down. Something is not working. It's, it's become unsustainable in some way. And so when this happens, and it's getting down to the very end, uh, what happens is that what knocks on the door is the spiritual calling. Right? Has anybody experienced this in their life? Is that often we see this, is that people, people's lives um, run into a rough spot, and that is when they're open, actually, to hearing spiritual teachings or to remembering their inner calling more than when they're caught up in job, family, social life, everything's kind of going along. It's easy to fall asleep and just do that. But when it breaks down, then you wake up and you remember, and something might knock on your door. <laughs> and what happens for Tsukasidi, now some of us just ignore that knock. You know, we're so busy getting our next job or scrambling out of that problem, reestablishing the conventional system, we don't hear the knock. But the knock was a spiritual practitioner. And what does she do? She nourishes that. So if the spiritual calling knocks, we can nourish it. Didn't have an immediate effect. In fact, the effect was that the system what tossed her out completely. And that can happen also. <laughs> um, and then, as Leanne said, she she didn't crash. She said, well, this is what's happening. I'm going to deal with it. Did her best, begged, and then eventually found something else that she would never have imagined. I mean, she would never have become a beer seller. She was living, she had a husband and sons. She didn't, that wasn't her thing to do. But she discovered she knew how to do beer. That's pretty cool. And um, I should add that in Tibetan tradition, beer is considered a symbol for wisdom. We don't have that in our tradition. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I kind of like that. So, again, so she, you know, reestablishes something that was totally different than what she could have imagined before, and we may have experienced that in our life, too. We've had a time when things fell apart, and we had no clue, and then suddenly something else happened, and we said, great, let's do that, and we realized maybe later, you know, this could never have happened (laughs) in my other life. It had to end first before this new phase could begin. And then she has another opportunity as she's going along in her new life to, again, make a spiritual offering. She hears about this teacher, and she immediately gives, as you pointed out. She's like, oh, take the beer for free. Um, And she didn't didn't even think necessarily, oh, I'm going to go get teachings, or what a great idea. 
she just she was just doing her life it didn't have to be a formal thing studying texts i can say that because i teach sutta study so i can <laughs> dismiss <laughs> um, so you know but she just fed again this this spiritual symbol that came into her life and then from that um it began to call her you know it, it summoned her more seriously and at that point she was ripe to become awakened so it comes in ways that we don't know necessarily we don't even know that it's going to come but suddenly it's there because of a bunch of past actions that we did not even knowing that that's what it was going toward so i think there's you know you don't need to know all of that about the story it's just one interpretation but i really um for me that's inspiring in in remembering that we don't know the bigger picture i guess that's what another thing that comes to mind for me about it we don't know the bigger picture there's a bigger arc going on than our little consciousness knows as we go along and it doesn't mean that there's a grand this is this came to a grand conclusion you know she got enlightened and then became a great teacher um and lived happily ever after no it doesn't say that who knows maybe she had a hard time then she had a bunch of students that were difficult and i don't know i don't know what happened to her after that but it was definitely not what she was thinking when she was married and had living with her children so you know there's there's something bigger going on and all the stories that we tell about this is how my life went blah 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 this is what i'm good at therefore this is what i'm capable of um they're just stories they're so just stories <laughs> uh not that we can just you know manufacture anything the conditions have to be there but um you don't always know how it's all going to unfold so that's my offering for kind of getting us going i'd be curious if any of you have resonances in your lives or if you want to share anything about how you got inspired to meditate or practice or again if you just have any questions about the dharma or about sitting practice yeah uh so i i sort of came to this from uh you know i reached a, a certain amount of success in in my life and got the opportunity to retire early mm. and uh I think that was kind of a down point for me in some ways. It's like interesting, it, isn't it? It was uh, clear that that wasn't enough, and um, I felt kind of cheated in in a way. Yeah, because you weren't as engaged. weren't um, was that, what, it, what did you feel? Why did you say I, I cheated? Felt like it was a, it was like this goal that I'd been working towards. Oh uh, yes. Once I got it. It was like okay now. Oh, classic. Yeah, disenchantment. Yeah, exactly. We think. We're told this is what is this is the best thing you can get. <laughs> so here it is, and then it maybe doesn't do it for us. Yeah. So you found something deeper then, or somehow you ended up I'm here. Looking. You're looking. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that can happen. Um, all the things that were it could be a physical thing. You know, we really want to get a, a house. You know, it's like wow, wouldn't it be great to own my own house or something? And then we finally get it, and it's like. Well, it's pretty good, but you know, there's the mortgage and there's the upkeep and all of that. Not that it's not a good thing, but yeah, it doesn't it's not enough in a sense. That's often one of the 
spiritual prompt, if you will, to realize that. I had a, um, your, your comment reminded me, the first company I worked for, uh, I came in just a few years before the founder of the company was retiring. And he sent out an email around the time he was retiring to all of his friends and said, you know, I'm going to be retiring in another month. I'm, I've, it's been a great time. Thank you so much for you know, being my client or colleague all these years. And I'm looking forward to the time with my family. You know, those usual kinds of summary emails. And he sent it off. And he, he had been working in the electronics industry, which is you know, some, some in the US and Europe, and also quite a bit in Asia. And so we had a lot of friends in Japan in particular. And he sent it off to just his whole general list. And he said that what came back was all the Americans wrote back and said, congratulations, it's going to be great. You know, hope you enjoy your family time. You've really earned it, blah, blah, blah. And all his Japanese friends wrote back and said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that, <laughs> you know, because it's like a loss of status, a loss of your friends, a loss of your, you know, everyday kind of connections. Retirement's not really seen as a good thing. And he, he said it was really funny to just see those differing reactions. Yeah. Well, there was another thing that sort of struck me about your story, and it was, uh, it relates back to uh, a, a parable, I think it was a, Jesus, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was about not worrying about tomorrow. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but you know the birds don't worry. You know animals don't worry about you know stockpiling right. things. You know yeah. tomorrow will take care of itself. And and so in reflecting on that uh, on that woman giving away the last of her rice and having yeah. some sense of faith that ultimately things will you know things will appear and, yeah. and unfold for her, um, you know, that kind of faith and, you know, that the life will provide somehow, uh, struck me. Yeah, it is quite beautiful because, you know, after all, she, the next day she might have been hit by a cart and, you know, that was it and she would have, it would have been better to give the rice and get that merit. But yeah, you're right, the way animals don't think much about the future, often Folks can sometimes admire animals, especially people who are prone to anxiety. They look at the animals and say, you know, <laughs> they don't think much about it. It can be a, a prompt for us to consider the value of that. Actually, yeah. I have one, one more thing that sort of struck me. Um, we get so tied up sometimes in planning for the future, planning for this eventuality when we can rest or that's right when i get to a certain point then then I can be happy right and really there's uh there's happiness in each moment or there's you know each each moment is is, is whole and, and sufficient and uh if we keep on projecting our minds forward into the future we never actually get that juiciness of what exists now beautifully said yeah in fact that sense of looking toward the future takes the mind a little bit away <laughs> from this present moment, like you said, the juiciness. Really, the, the present moment is the only thing that exists. I don't even know if it exists, but <laughs> at least for sure there's something happening. Um, and 
the future is really a thought, right? It's just a thought that's occurring in the present, just like the past memories. It's not that, you know, there's no effect from the past. Stuff did flow in to get me to this point. But right now, if I'm remembering last week, it's a thought in the present moment. We often don't remember that. We view a lot of reality to things that are not present. That, that diminishes the present moment. It leads to a lot of suffering, too. Running toward the past or the future. Have you started to find things that are more satisfactory than retirement? Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, my men's group and mm-hmm. connection. It's pretty funny, actually, this idea that if we work really hard, then we'll be able to relax. Because the teachings here of the, of the understanding of the mind are that whatever we're practicing, quote-unquote, which means whatever we're doing in this moment, uh, is conditioning the way the mind will be in the future. So if what we're practicing is pushing and striving and aiming, then there's no way that when, at some designated time in the future, we'll be able to just stop that, because we've been conditioning that again and again. It's like if you condition anger again and again and again, that's what's in your mind. (laughs) So if you condition pushing again and again and again, when you people come on retreat after pushing and pushing and pushing, and then they find their minds busy for the first three days, well, I wonder why. You know, um, it does eventually settle down, of course, with, without the ongoing stimulation. But if you've been pushing for 60 years, <laughs> yeah. So this, um, this puts in perspective to remember what we're doing with our mind in each moment, because that has an impact. Of course, we still have to sometimes put out effort. We do still have to plan. There may be moments where we need to do certain things, but doing all of that, at least with the awareness of, that's what I'm doing, then at least we're also conditioning mindfulness at the same moment, and then we'll have more mindfulness available in the future. But why not put in a few more moments of practice of loving-kindness and generosity and ease and contentment? Those will, those will not be lost. They will not be lost. There's a teaching that says, like dripping drops of water, the bucket will be filled. So each thing that we do, I find that the negativity bias in my mind um, sometimes, I know this from experience not to be true, but if I'm feeling lazy, my mind will be like, oh, you know, this doesn't matter what I'm doing at this moment. It doesn't matter that I'm practicing anxiety by thinking about this thing again and again and again. Surely it's going to help if I keep thinking about it. And then I remember, no, I'm practicing anxiety. And even the other way, sometimes if I'm thinking good thoughts or um, you know, wishing well for somebody, I can have a kind of little cynical voice saying, yeah, but it doesn't really matter, you know. But it does matter. <laughs> it's like, who are you? So I don't have that very often, but um, it's, I think it's worth naming that we sometimes have those little voices that say, this doesn't really matter. 
but actually it does matter. Yeah. You have faith in that. So what's your feeling of the, the role of, um, of discomfort or pain when you're sitting? Like my, my practice is to follow my breath mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll have pain arise. And is it, is it more important to, to work with the pain and, and be with that? Or is it more important to adjust and go back to focusing on your breathing? Mm. I think there's a lot of different options, um, and what's most important is to not be denying or pushing something away. So the intention may be to stay with the breath, but if pain or discomfort is kind of intruding into that, it's important to include that in some way. and. Uh, what ultimately is done with it depends on how things unfold. But I, I usually expand my awareness to include the pain and just see if allowing it to be there helps it to just be stable. If not, it's also possible to investigate the pain itself and to you know, go in just mentally into wherever it is and, and allow and sort of feel that, to drop the breath and be with the pain. Sometimes that can increase the pain, and so if that's not feeling comfortable, we can drop the breath and go to a part of the body that feels more at ease. Not because we're denying or pushing away the pain, but because we're just putting it in a different container, one that's based in some place that feels comfortable or easeful. Uh, it's also possible to investigate the mind's reaction. I'm giving you a lot of the whole spectrum of options. Yeah, I was so, looking for like scratch or don't scratch. I know you were, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not going for that, am I? So it's, um, yeah. So you can also look at the mind. Um, what's the mind doing with the pain? Is it saying, "Oh no, I'm going to need surgery. You know, it's mm -hmm. terrible." Blah blah blah. And so then we just see that the reactivity of the mind, and actually seeing that often settles it down. And it's also okay after you've done a little bit of these other things um, and it feels like, you know, this is really kind of uh, uncomfortable and I think, uh, I think it's not good, it's not good for me physically to be sitting that way, then you just mindfully adjust. Yeah. I would say that if, since you're, if you're looking for a soundbite answer, it's don't move right away. But try to do a little investigation, a little mindfulness, and then either it'll settle out or it'll become more and then if it feels like it it's okay to move but just do it mindfully yeah, yeah. what about um like the, there was a lot of music outside there certainly I, was it seems to have quieted down as soon as we're not sitting right it was interesting trying to to uh, not go off with that yeah and to try and stay i guess it's sort of the same thing it's as, the same thing it's yeah. it's a bothering that's coming in through the ear door instead of through the body door basically so it's the same thing. You can tune it out, um, see how you're reacting to it. One thing I do with sound that's kind of um, interesting is I pretend that my body is transparent to sound. I imagine it as being just like made of air. And so the sound just passes right through. That can be an interesting little imagination to do. Actually, truthfully, if I'm well enough focused on the breath, I don't even hear it. 
occasionally my mind will resurface and I'll say, oh, yep, that music is still going and then it's gone again, not, just not paying attention to it. But I know some people have more difficulty with sound, so I'm not being dismissive about that. There are some people for whom sound is, is a big challenge. deeply that are you know, difficult to be with and their difficulty is sort of new I'm just thinking because we just had a side to talk about emptiness mm. or being, you know, being able to you know, not see us as separate selves if, you know, what would be the wise way to be able to be there for someone without damaging yourself maybe yeah well in if, if you're concerned about who's getting damaged, then that's a realm of compassion. And um, compassion includes compassion for the entire situation that's going on. It's true that you're not literally separate entities, and so the emptiness teachings are relevant, but they point to um, finding a situation that works for all, right? And so you have compassion because you care about this person, but you also have compassion for your own stability of mind, your own peace, you're not going to be able to help them if you get dragged in. You know, if they're in the quicksand, it doesn't help you to get pulled into the quicksand. Uh, stay on the dry ground. So, you know, what does this mean practically? This is a nice idea, but practically it can mean things like, there's again, there's no one option, but you can express um, how you're feeling. They, they may simply not know. So, um, it's possible to say something like, what you're saying is, um, is hurtful to me, or I'm, I'm feeling agitated by what you're describing. Um, you never know. They might, they might say, oh, I didn't realize that, or oh, um, you don't know the response. Or you can um, meet them at a different level, you know, instead of meeting them at the level of arguing with them or saying, well, you shouldn't feel this way, or here's what I think you should do. It could be repeating back what they said. You know, I, I hear that you're very concerned about X. Often when people's feelings are acknowledged, they actually have a very relaxing response. When people are upset, often a component of it is, I'm frustrated, I can't get the world to be the way I want it, and here's why, and I'm going to tell you about it. And if you just say, wow, I hear that you are not being met on this, it can actually do a lot of help. And then they might be more open to listening. And so you can say, and this is upsetting to me, or and um, I don't feel I can get involved, but I'm happy to offer support in some other way, something like that. I'm giving things that are you know, kind of generic, but you can maybe be specific enough to find something in there. Yeah. So that's coming from, in your heart, the intention of compassion, whereas emptiness is coming from the intention of letting go. Both of those are, are good. So those two of the three wise intentions. Does that help? Okay.
Or the translation. I don't know if it's always an interpretation. I guess it is. I guess all translation is interpretation. Yeah. So I know you know people struggle with um, a lot of the things like nothingness or emptiness and the terminology when you try and put Pali into English. It's difficult mm. for the Western mind, especially, to understand. And uh, I don't know how. I'm not an expert, yeah. but um, I'm learning. I've been it's exposed it's for a while. But it sounds like you have a question about this term emptiness. I'm yeah. wondering what that is. Yeah, it's just this probably in my mind because too soon I had to talk on that. Yeah. It was funny because I had two friends there, and one of them was saying, Wow, that is the best I have ever heard on emptiness. It was great. My other friend said, I wish I'd never come. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's completely opposite. Well, sort of that shows like, how important our interpretation is. You know, followed it totally, but yeah. So when you think of the term emptiness, what does that, like, what does that bring up for you, just that word? Uh, maybe, um, it really is, even though we have our physical selves and all that, but there's, there's really... We're all part of the same thing, and they're all, you know, inter interconnected. And so that's an idea. Yeah. What does the word emptiness actually bring up for you mm -hmm. in your body? Uh, openness. Uh huh. Yeah. There's kind of a shift, maybe, in. That actually sounds kind of positive, or is yeah, it scary? Positive, positive, Emptiness. Not having, it feels a little freeing. You don't have to be so carrying you know, everything on your shoulders and it's there. It's just there, and that's a great phrase. Yeah. It's a term well worth exploring. Um, you know, works better than for some people than other people, of course. But I would stay with that kind of feeling while you're mm -hmm. doing this. Is this Carla's group on, on uh, emptiness? No, it's, okay. Uh, it's Mountain View. Oh, it's in Mountain View. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm just curious. Um, yeah. So just, uh, I mean, I would make it. You've studied. You've practiced for a long time. So bring it. Bring it a little deeper in. Like right into your heart, right into your gut. Like, wow, what is this doing for me? Maybe that openness sometimes feels really inviting and freeing, like you said. There may be other times when your mind's in a different state where that openness feels terrifying or feels um, cold in some way. It's it's interest. It would be interesting to kind of feel the whole spectrum and start to get a more personal sense of what this means for you. And then it might be good to be able to recognize what my mind is, where my mind is at when I like, I feel cold or terrified, you know, mm -hmm. in my inner burst of state, or you know, I kind of looking at it that way. Well, or just feeling, yeah, yeah, just checking what else is present, I guess, mm -hmm. or just resting with it. Yeah. There, 
are times when what practice brings up is fear. <laughs> My teacher says any spiritual practice worth its salt will eventually bring up fear. Um, and it doesn't mean, you know, reveling in that or falling into it or anything, but just uh, just be aware that that's part of uh, the process. It's a deep topic, emptiness. And um, a really powerful one, freeing, as you said. Yeah. So when you say emptiness, you talk to me when they say not self? Yeah, it's similar. I don't want to literally say they're the same, but it's all po- it's pointing toward the same thing toward a suffering that's brought about by envisioning ourselves as a separate entity interacting in an external world, which is, of course, how we think of ourselves a lot of the time. And eventually this practice begins to challenge that notion. Empty means empty of an an essence, empty of an essential, core, unchanging reality to something. We can't really find that. Substantial. Hmm? Like insubstantial. Like nothing really really there. For sure, this bell would hurt my hand if I were to hit it hard enough. So there's something there, but um, some forces. But yeah, inessential. Yeah, without an essence, essentially. Essentially, it's without an essence. I like to think of thought as you know the physical or biological, the science of it. Because if you if you were to take a electronic microscope or you know, go deep enough, you'd see there's just a bunch of atoms, and then that's just a bunch of quarks, and there's a whole bunch right, of it's space. All space right? It's more more space yeah, than yeah. substance. Yeah. So yeah. scientifically, wow. we see this. Yeah. Plus, we, we're changing every moment. I'm not at all the same person I was even five minutes ago, but. Especially 10 years How about ago. 10 years ago? How about 50 years ago? You know, it's like obviously there's been something different. Yeah. So these teachings are meant, I mean, they're meant to free us, right? They're meant to reduce our suffering, shall we say. And so the proposition is not that you need to believe this. If you're going to be a Buddhist, you have to believe in emptiness. You know, it's like that's you sign the form when you walk in the door. No, and we, you know, we're not even, we don't even make you sign up that you're a Buddhist. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, but the question then for us is to test for ourselves is, does thinking in this way, does thinking of myself as a little separate vulnerable entity subject to some external world, is that peace or is that suffering? And if we conclude, well, that's actually pretty vulnerable and challenging and has led to a lot of problems in my life, then we can we would be more open to, oh, well, could, could there be another idea about that? The sense of self is very real. It's not that there isn't something here. When I eat, I put the food in this mouth, not some, some other mouth. I know which one it goes in. So that's, it's not, um, we can dismiss those kind of obvious objections that people make. Well, you know, Otherwise, how could you know which car was yours to go to? Yeah. That's, not what we're ta- that's not the level we're talking about. It's more subtle, like what you were saying about the interconnection, but that's only an idea. So I like people to go to the, to the actual feelings of it. You know, what is the feeling if I consider, oh, this is a process instead of an object, or 
emptiness. This doesn't have an essential component to it. Ah, how does that feel? Another approach is to look for the essential component. The, the Buddha in the early discourses used to ask people, find it, <laughs> you know? Is it your body? Is it your thoughts? Is it your feelings? Um, your perceptions? So he would actually ask people to kind of investigate that. And if you do, you discover that it's very difficult to pin down, point to it. Where is it? And so then you start to loosen the concept a little bit and say, oh, okay, well, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe there's something to that. But I don't think it has to be a belief or a whole new uh, conceptual idea of how the world works. It's, It's more like a practice. You just hold things a little less tightly, see if you suffer less. Yeah. What's interesting for me is when I'm I'm following my breath and I and I um, you know lose focus and fall into reverie or fantasy. It's like mm-hmm. I've always identified with my thoughts, but I also realize that I'm not thinking. It's not like I'm. I'm making a decision to think a particular thought. Yeah, they just arise. It's like they're 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 coming out of nowhere, and and these voices, you know, critical voices or uh, you know different different things that arise in my mind. I I don't feel as if I'm producing those. It's interesting, isn't it? To a sense of like, okay, what what is is, this process? uh, What what am I? Because. I say I'm doing these things, but they're arising on their own. How much of my other behavior is is conditioned or, or reflexive or somehow, or like I backfill, like I do something and then I say, oh, I did that because this, this, and this. I mean, it's amazing really... the ability to produce a story, yeah, looking back, because we so much want there to be this nice neat tale. That was very important, what you said, is to start questioning that. Yeah, and if you turn toward those voices, like that critical voice, and say, who are you? Show your face. You know, it's like gone, right? Often. So. It asks you back, who are you? Show your face. Show your face, right. And then you can get into a whole thing. But, yeah. So these are just interesting explorations and, and important things to wonder. Yeah. Yeah, great topic. All right, well, is there um, anything else, or...? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.